All right. We should have Jason in just a moment. Uh, the text message that I just got from him says, and I quote, uh, just a minute. I'm trying to open it on my slow ass computer. But uh, while we wait for Jason, I just want to mention a couple of things. Uh, one is, you know, the reason, in fact, uh, that this has started slightly late is that I was just uh, buying uh, my tickets uh, to New York for the live show that we're doing on January 22nd which I'm very excited about. So this is the second, uh, this is revolution slash GTAA slash left reckoning live show. The first one was a couple months ago in Los Angeles, which was a blast at the Terragram ballroom. And, uh, with, uh, Anna Kasparian and Nando, uh, and a bunch of other people there. This one is going to be, uh, January 22nd. So that is two weeks from tomorrow. So if you have not bought those tickets yet, I would uh, I would think about doing that um, if uh, if you want to come. So that is again two weeks from tomorrow, January twenty second, uh, at uh, the Cutting Room, which is very centrally located. Uh, if you're coming in from out of town or whatever, it's like half a mile from Penn Station, I think. Uh, and so that's VIP uh, meet and greet at five. Doors open. Uh, for the main show at six and the show actually starts at seven with a bunch of guests, uh, who we really like. I have a Vigland, uh, you know, political commentator, sports commentator, great person, uh, Bhaskar Sankara, founding editor of, uh, Jackman magazine and Sam Cedar, best known as the voice of Hugo on Bob's burgers. So I uh, really looking forward to that, but having filibuster for all this time, uh, I do see that Jason is with us. Uh, Jason, remember you have to unmute yourself. It's that little thing at the bottom that looks like a microphone. Now it's on bar through it. Can you hear me? I can. Awesome. It's so weird uh, being that you were sitting next to me two seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, so I was actually out on Jason's porch uh, while we looked at, at tickets for, for New York on uh, the computer and uh and then after i'd finally you know uh finally booked tickets uh you know we're we're flying in together and also with with our producer jordan uh then uh it's like oh shit it's after 4 got to start the calling but uh, but yeah i'm just going to talk to you as if i as if this was our first time speaking today uh yeah. jason <laughs> how have you been doing uh, well, I uh, went with a friend uh, grocery shopping, which was very important. And we had uh, a good friend and I had breakfast at uh, my favorite breakfast place, probably on the West Coast. Um, and then we went to uh, Mexican Target. Yeah, uh, which is not called. What is Mexican Target actually called? Uh, Soriana. <laughs> Soriana. Yeah, but it looks just like Target. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's like affiliated. I don't think it's a subsidiary or anything. I think they're just trying to look like Target. Yeah, <laughs> that's the funny part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we're down here uh, training John Connor to uh, to fight the machines. <laughs> uh, but going to be back up, uh, back up in uh, 
on the gringo side, severely north of the gringo side of the border in New York in uh, actually less than two weeks because we're both going to get there a couple days before uh, before the show, maybe uh, maybe slip in some majority report. Who knows? Yeah, try to do some pre-show press. Yes, exactly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, what a, if you have a question for Jason – Go ahead and get in the queue, and I'm going to take you very soon. You know, part of my intention for the way that the show is being retooled for the new year is that if there are calls, I start taking calls within like five minutes. So it's not just me monologuing or me and my guest talking uh, for the uh, for the whole time, but uh, just to just to kind of get us started. Uh, so, so Jason, you've always got stuff cooking as far mm-hmm. as like video essays, essay essays. Uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, there's, there's an essay essay, uh, that I have cooking and I will say this. Um, I said this on my, I believe I said this on the show, but I definitely want to say this for the public. Uh, one of the best things about, um, living near a prolific writer like Ben Burgess is that, um, it is competitive fuel for me because I saw that he wrote 83 articles last year in conjunction with teaching flying all over the country for speaking engagements and, uh, and hosting a show being very diligent about hosting the show and adding this new call in show. So I was like, if I'm not writing at least half that, then I mean, I'm not trying hard enough. Well, yeah, uh, man, I'd, I'd really be an asshole if I corrected you and said 89, but yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, nah, 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 that even, that, that's more of me like, damn, I, I need to, I'm, I'm not doing enough. So uh, I definitely yeah. have the very well, large feature length project that is still in the works, which is uh, yeah. a fave video essay that we released a trailer for on YouTube a while back. And we were having, we were having so much problems with um, sending proofs. The, the, the dude that's helping me put it together. Actually, I shouldn't say help. It's, it's my concept and my narration um, and I had a lot of influence in the imagery, um, that was put forth, but there's a young man, uh, Alex Michael out of Los Angeles, a filmmaker out of, out of Los Angeles that, uh, uh, is, is really putting in a lot of the work and he couldn't even send me like the first draft through a private link on YouTube. They, they took it down. So we've been brainstorming ideas on how we're going to put this out and I don't want to put it on any sort of, uh, you know, YouTube or, or Vimeo. Well, if, if I, if I am going to break the, uh, the, uh, the illusion that I'm, I'm just talking to you for the first time today. Now I, w- I will, uh, I will say that I will reiterate what I told you in private, which is I, th- I think you should send these to like film festivals and stuff. I think that'd be awesome. That, that's, that's the, the goal um uh to submit it to some film festivals but we will be doing like a screening tour nice. for this um talking with the booking agent um we're going to be be kind of traveling around i actually spoke with Doug Lane who actually also did about an hour long uh documentary on the uh cyberpunk scene and and guys like are you serious and, and mondo magazine and the creation of that and we were talking about doing a little a little fun uh, screening for these, and then of course a Q and A afterwards, and and do, going up the West Coast, and then maybe expanding it out uh, nice. uh, further. But that's definitely something we're planning in the spring. Um, 
I finally have some speaking, <laughs> some speaking engagements that I'll be doing. I'm, I'll be speaking at UC Riverside next month. I'm pretty stoked about that, about the the video essays. So, uh, thank you for calling me a video essayist. I, I, I think that's what I do uh, well. Um, and I'm definitely working on some some writing pieces um, with my editor and good friend Jean Bajlan, who kind of got me to narrow some some thoughts down and uh, the first part is going to be uh, about it was originally called Tr- Donald Trump is having his Chinese democracy moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will say on that actually. So the other day uh, our, yeah, our good friends, the aforementioned Jordan and deep Cuba and, uh, and, and, uh, and Mrs. Deep State, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're down here and we were talking a little bit about Donald Trump as you do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you were kind of expressing this, this view that, you know, is, uh, I, I actually should say, uh, in, in a second, in a second, I want you to unpack the Chinese democracy reference. Cause I think yeah. the people, who, people who aren't old like us, you know, might not, uh, <laughs> might not know what that means, but, uh, but, um, but you know, you you, you kind of said that you know Trump's moment was you know was 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 kind of over, and um, I you know and I had a different take on that, and you know I, I still think there are aspects of this we probably see differently. But I will say, this last week was a hell of a confirmation of right now it's looking a lot like the Trump moment is over. With the with the the vote for the Speaker of the House. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah. He was saying you have like twenty of the mo- of the like maggiest uh, yeah. uh, people in Congress who are who are holding out and 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 voting for other people, you know, voting present, doing all these shenanigans, uh, so that McCarthy didn't get it. And Donald Trump publicly begged them to vote for him. They were just like, yeah, nah. And like, <laughs> yeah. and like, there was one point where Matt Gates like trollishly like voted for Trump himself for speaker, which is itself like define what Trump wanted him to do. And also the fact that he's the only one who did that, <laughs> you know, like when they were announcing the vote totals, Donald John Trump won. Yeah. You know, like I saw some of that. I was, uh, somebody was, was it maybe the young Turks or somebody, you know, was getting in the weeds on that. And I watched it for like five minutes and, and then I had to you know, wash my eyes out. But, uh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, for those that don't know, so there's a band from the from the late '80s that I am a fan of. Their first record, uh, Guns and Roses, and yeah, Guns and Roses records, released their yeah. first record. I'm sorry. Yeah, so that's Appetite for Destruction. Appetite for Destruction comes out in '87 and doesn't really catch fire. Until Welcome the to the jungle. Yeah, sorry. Well, if you remember, and, and not a lot of people remember this, Welcome to the Jungle is like the first video and it really hit. And uh, Sweet Child of Mine hits, and then Welcome to the Jungle hits. And so, anyway, that that band uh, was a big influence on me, especially Slash, as a uh, as a as a blackish guitar player. Um, uh, definitely, I'm a huge Slash fan. And um, you know, their second EP is where they dropped the M bomb, and they actually took that song off. And I, I wasn't a fan of their Use Your Illusions. But those were massive hits for Guns N' Roses. I, I'm, and, not, I'm not a big fan of those either. I, I will say that each each record had like one or two good songs on it. it yeah, you know, you got the song from Terminator 2, You Could Be Mine, and uh, 
November Rain. And I think mm-hmm. there was like a cover that was a big hit. And if a cover is your big hit, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> not saying a lot for your for your album. But those records were massive for Guns N' Roses. And of course, these guys, much like a lot of their peers, uh, started to succumb to their, you know, massive uh, drug addictions. Um, and, and another thing people need to understand is just because you have a big hit record doesn't mean you have a lot of money. Yeah. And by the time you get to the Use Your Illusions, those guys finally have money. And that's why the band kind of falls apart soon after. And and then they were getting hit with a lot of lawsuits. You know, uh, Axel had a, we joke about it on TIR, you know, coming in late on Axel Rose time, but he had a reputation for, you know, get walking on stage like hours late, even when they were, you know, playing with Metallica, they were walking on stage hours late. And, you know, there's the famous, um, uh, situation where James was from Metallica, the guitar player and singer from Metallica was in the wrong spot when a pyrotechnic went off and he got basically lit on fire and skin was melting off his arm and guns and roses wouldn't come out because they thought an axle, you know, was like, well, James just upstaged me with this fucking uh, getting blown up. And, you know, they get, lo- they get lawsuits. They're getting sued all over the country for riots that they were causing because they wouldn't come on stage. So the band kind of dissolves the core members leaving Axl Rose by himself. And he starts, you know, hiring ridiculously talented uh, L.A. Uh, uh, musical, asset, like, you know, Buckethead and, and Bumblefoot and, you know, big time people. And he's like, I'm writing this record called Chinese Democracy. And as band members start, you know, quitting the band, he's still going, I'm going to write this. I'm writing this Chinese Democracy. It's the greatest album ever. And, you know, for years, what was it, like 20 years, Ben? It was something like that. It was the longest, like, it was a punchline for, like, many years before it actually came out. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, like like Guns N' Roses and the Chinese Democracy is going to come out. So finally, he releases this record, which was a hodgepodge of different musicians and you know, a bunch of different recordings over probably 20 years, at least. I, I listened to it once and it made me really sad. Oof. I refuse to listen to it. So I, I actually can't even give my own critique on it. Um, by that time, I just didn't care. I really just didn't care. Um, and that's kind of how I felt about, um, I was watching something about Donald Trump and NFTs. Like it, like it was an ad that he had about NFTs. And I thought it was kind of funny but sad. And I, it made me think about 2015 and 2016, that moment where he was very popular and it felt like a hype filled moment. Uh-huh. And when he won the presidency, there was really nothing behind it. So the people that were really hoping for change didn't get it. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the Washington outsider they thought he was going to be. He wasn't the beacon for the common man they thought he was going to be. Um, And he's not, in my opinion, the first president that has a brand. Sure. Oh, definitely. Uses his brand to go into the White House. And I started thinking about, I can't remember when it started, but most presidents are governors in the modern era. Mm -hmm. They've been governors. And that ends with Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And that's a president as brand. He is the the Democratic Party brand that Donald Trump literally was able to rail, rally against. He was able to take the idea of what a Democrat looks like mm-hmm. and campaign against that. 
And then he creates a brand in the, in the process. And yeah. I, I mean, and, and you notice that all of the sort of lesser, uh, you know, like this, this, this kind of like lesser breed of neoliberals, your, your, uh, Pete Buttigieg's and Kamala Harris's and, uh, oh, like, you know, Cory Booker, I guess, mm-hmm. or like, um, you know, the, you know, I don't know, Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, it's like all these people, uh, to one degree or another, they're not all equally blatant about it, but like to one degree or another, they're all doing bad Obama impressions. Yeah. Did you, did you, did you say Beto too? Beto has like the worst. Oh, name. Beto is a perfect example. Yeah. Actually not one of the names I said, but I should have. Yeah. He's like Obama with the curse words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, that he's going to drop an F-bomb once every other speech, but like, you know, that's going to be what makes him interested. That's kind of it. Yeah. But like, <laughs> you know, he does. I mean, you mentioned the young Turks. I remember something I will say, whatever I've, you know, agreed or disagreed with anybody on that network about over the years, something I will always learn from them. I wish we weren't doing this audio only so I can show people <laughs> is uh, years ago. I remember I was watching that and Jenk Uger talked about the, uh, the Democrat hand gesture, which is this thing that they do where it's like not quite a thumbs up and it's not quite pointing. It's like this weird combination that like, you know, oh. some, some consultant told them it's like, uh, you know, it's like less threatening than pointing at people or something. And, uh, <laughs> I started seeing Obama do that all the goddamn time. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, Trump is, is sort of like the original appeal of Trump in a way is that he was like Republican Bullworth that like, yes. he was just this like crazy guy who would say anything and, you know, he would say what everybody's thinking and he would like, you know, he would burn it all down. You know, he, he would reveal all the secrets, of the politicians, uh, but it, you know, it's also a very specific brand and like, uh, and, and even now I will say like, I mean, like, like it's going to be interesting to see how it works if Ron DeSantis runs for president. Cause certainly Ron DeSantis as a governor, uh, was like kind of doing a, a weird Trump impression too. Mm-hmm. Because if if you can't really impersonate these people, because first of all, Obama is an individual; like mm-hmm. he's not a carbon copy. We can talk about him being created in a lab. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can. That's a different conversation. But you know, that mold might have been broken. Yeah, and but in, in, in a certain way, but like mm-hmm. he, like, like, yeah, there is something lab grown about Obama, but I mean, like, he is, yeah, he is very distinctive. Like, and, and he is, and I will say, like, none of the, none of the Obama, like, I'm just purely talking aesthetics here. I mean, leave politics mm-hmm. out of it, right? Like, yep. uh, that none of the Obama imitators have the kind of, like, like, like they're doing all the things Obama did but without the obama warmth and it's really mm-hmm. off-putting mm-hmm. and and you need that moment obama could only happen in the <laughs> where you're True. dealing with eight years of bush jr who for a lot of america is an embarrassment yep and so you have this guy who's this like um i mean the fact that he has the fact that he was a law professor Right, that he Harvard um, Law Review, yeah, and he sounds like it. Yes, <laughs> like uh, that, and there's also this sort of promise of of like healing racial divisions that's implicit in the idea of Obama. That and, you oh, know, yeah. 
was very explicit in the 2008, right? You know, so it's like that all factors into it. And it's, it's all this combination that works really well. But if you're like, in, if you're like done that for eight years and then you're just kind of trying to like, you know, to, um, you know, to like blow on the embers, you know, of, of yeah. that <laughs> in this much less convincing package, right? Because it's like fucking beat Buttigieg. Like, 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 what oh. is that? I mean, that's the, you know, what's the, like, who is that for? And, and Pete Buttigieg is supposed to be kind of like the even better Obama because, you know, he, uh, he also served. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I look, I can do it all. I got the Harvard shit. I got the military background. I can speak 57 languages, allegedly. Yeah. Well, it's also like, there's also a thing, and I see we've got a couple of calls, so I'll start taking calls in just a second. Sure. But I, I just want to say, like, I don't know. And also, like, part of what was so off-putting about Hillary Clinton in 2016, which is something that really came into focus for me because – right around the time that the Democratic primaries were ending and the general election was started in 2016. I read uh, Thomas Frank's book, Listen Liberal, oh. mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, perfect timing, right? And, uh, uh, or I, whatever. I, I think I actually listened to it over a series of dog walks, but whatever. I had, uh, <laughs> I consumed uh, Thomas Frank's book, uh, Listen Liberal. And, uh, and that really brought into focus for me one of the things that was so off-putting about Hillary Clinton, which was that, um, which was that she just treated the election as this technocratic job interview that like you had to vote for her because she was so qualified. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, that was like the pitch, you know, I mean, that's, it's like, I I think, I think uh, Doug Hedwood says in his book about her that like, um, you know, half jokingly, you know, when, when her aides were like talking about what the campaign slogan was should be one of them half jokingly said her turn. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt. And it's like, a lot of America felt that it was going to be, you know, 2012. I think a lot of America was preparing themselves for, for Hillary Clinton as president. And it didn't really sit right with a lot of people, especially after the overblowing of, of Benghazi on, on right wing news. Yeah. Um, right. Cause it's, it's like this, like, Oh, get a buckle in for four to eight years of that, but also nothing good happening. Uh, it's, it's all just going to be kind of, yeah, this less appealing, you know, it's like, and like Obama didn't quite run on that, but I mean, with Hillary, that sort of like PMC credentialism, which, you know, never even totally made sense. Cause it's like, people would say like, I can't believe she, I can't believe Donald Trump isn't getting 0% of the polls. Cause you know, Hillary Clinton is the most qualified candidate ever. It's like, well, okay, first of all, it's not even true. On its own terms. <laughs> like, even if you accept that whole ideological framework where you'd say a sentence like that it's like no that's not even true i mean like george george hw bush uh was was the vice president of the head of the cia i mean like that's you know that's a lot yeah. better than like one term in the senate and then you were secretary of state come on now like yeah. uh, you know i like yeah all these other people were, were were you know i mean as you say i mean everybody like really actually up until obama everybody had been either a governor or the vice president just before that going back mm-hmm. to, I don't even fucking know when. I mean, I don't That's know what I'm when. saying in the modern, when you look about the modern era, there was experience in the position and that's how we looked at it. And Obama really breaks that mold. And Obama also runs on, in my opinion, um, projection. And he, he allows people to project onto him, whatever narrative fits in a way that's kind of amazing, right? The single mom thing. 
Yeah. You had a stepdad, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and, and he comes from money. It's not like it's my single mom, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. But there's a lot of stuff that if you ignored some details and shuffled things around a little bit and looked at it from just the right angle is like inspiring enough that when mm-hmm. it's combined with the rest of that package, people want to believe it. Uh, whereas like there was really never anything about Hillary Clinton or any of these like lesser latter day, you know, like 2020 neoliberals we were talking about that made people want to believe it, which is <laughs> – yeah, she had the sins. She also had to overcome the sins of her husband that became much more apparent in that run. Yeah, um, because the the ride of joy that a lot of America rode off the deregulation um, of the Clinton administration comes crashing down towards the tail end of Bush Jr. Mm-hmm. And now everyone's pointing the finger at Bill Clinton for mass incarceration. Everyone's pointing the finger at Bill Clinton for deregulation and where we are financially. And Hillary Clinton has to try to uh, run against that. Um, I'll shut up. I know people want to call in and say something. Yeah. uh, Dickie. Hey, I was just, uh, I think that I'm not sure. Don't quote me on this. I think that 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 thumb thing where you got the thumb on your knuckle. Um, I think that come because Walter Mondale. Oh, seriously! Was, Interesting. Was, po- was pointing while he was uh, telling speeches. And oh, telling, and, and people thought it was like off-putting, aggressive, too aggressive. Yeah. So that's the first you really see that is Bill. You know, I, I see. think he heard me the first time. I think Bill. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think he was doing that when he was saying he he didn't fuck Monica Lewinsky. So yeah, I, well, <laughs> he, did that, he did that through most of his speeches. But I don't quote me on it because I'm not a hundred on it. But I, if I remember right, he was a pointer when he talked. When he got excited on the campaign trail, he would point out at people. And I think that some spin doctor or some somebody looked at that and and, and edited the behavior. And so you don't. That's why you don't have the pointing. Not unless they're pointing at somebody and doing that kind of gun thing that they do, you know, like point out <laughs> the crowd with a smile and kind of wink, where uh, you want to shoot them when they. <laughs> but uh, I think that come from Mondale. I'm not a hundred on that, but I I don't know if I read that or thought it up when you guys were saying it. But, I, <laughs> but it seems to ring a bell that that's why the Clinton knuckle thumb thing is exists in politics today. Okay. No, that's, that's good. That's that is some that's that's that that has the ring of truth to it, and uh, and that's some good background. I'm gonna look that up. <laughs> See if that's right. That's all I really had to add. I'm not I'm not really a politician lover, so uh, I don't. It makes me throw up when I think about because I voted Obama. Sure. Um, the first time I bought it, the second time was pretty cynical. It was lesser to evil, and that's the last time I voted. Was. Uh, in 2012 and I did that cynically and, and uh, this man is, it was bad and it's just gotten worse since. And, and that was kind of my, my, my feeling when I was thinking about doing this piece, I was reading someone's critique of Donald Trump and, and saying something similar to what I'm trying to say, but in a much more uh, pro liberal pro Biden way. And, and I don't feel that way. Um, I just feel that we're in a moment where hype and branding is very important. Well, yeah, the, and it, and it's, the, it's, the one pro Biden thing I would say that's relevant to this conversation is like, look, you think, you know, 
Uh, <laughs> this isn't much, right? But like, I mean, obviously politically, you know, Biden just crushed the rail strike and, and his, uh, and, and, and he's like starving Afghanistan. So I'm not a fan, but, uh, but, uh, aesthetically, one thing that I kind of like about Biden relevant to this conversation is that there's a certain sense in which he's the only one of the last three presidents who seems to just want to be a politician, not a celebrity. Yeah. You, we were saying it the other day, there's something to be said about well, that. Which is I kind don't, of interesting. Does he? I mean, does he have the faculties to really do? I mean, it's kind well, of I mean, maybe, maybe that's why. Well, <laughs> it is refreshing. You know, he's de- defaulting to what he what he is. I, I don't yeah, think, yeah yeah. I don't. Mr. I think Mr. Nikki, kind of, I don't think he ever cared to be a celebrity like that. I think he's old enough and of a generation where you make your mark in the world with being president. I yeah, I mean, he's, he's not going to do like like even if he were even if he weren't senile. I mean, like he's not. Um, I have a really hard time imagining Biden like putting out his like playlist of the music that his aides thought he should yeah. pretend to listen to, like like Obama does every <laughs> year, uh, or uh, <laughs> um, or 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 conversely, spending all of his time like uh, on Twitter, you know, like you know beefing with like pop culture figures like Trump Elon did until Musk. you know yeah exactly well you know? I think they would I think his handlers would ring rail him in because he's not I mean it, it, Trump is almost like a hate comedian uh-huh. and, <laughs> and and then you have Obama for for all of his faults he can articulate well and he's not a he, you know he's not an idiot I don't know at any point that Biden wasn't kind of, I don't know if he was, you could ever consider him stupid, but at the same time, he, he's probably his establishment kind of like a droid as you can get, like yeah, at his uh, best. In a certain was. way. Like, I mean, there's a, like, I get what you're saying. I mean, like he, he's, uh, uh, he's very uh, formulaic, formulaic or whatever you would. Yeah. Although he does have these moments where he like, like remember during the, during the campaign when he got mad at some voter, like when he was campaigning and like uh, said, Hey fat and like challenged him to do a push up competition. <laughs> well, I, the most, the most cringy thing that I've seen was when he was, I don't, I don't know the, I actually, that was it. He was on a FaceTime with a bunch of African-American uh, oh, uh, leaders yeah. and stuff. Look here, Jack. Oh yeah, look, what have I, I? Look what I've done. No president or any what he said oh, yeah. You're not has ever done me. more for black. Like you ain't black. That remember well, that that because they were just doing a little pushback, you know, or 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 you know, wasn't even pushback because it because they were just stating reality. Uh, and then there was the weird thing about it was they all kind of froze. They. That's the weird thing. I was waiting for somebody to say, you got to be out of your effing mind, but nobody said a word. They just kind of like, okay, well, that's over. And I, I was, I was kind of shocked that some, somebody in that panel didn't start, you know, saying, well, what about the crime bill? Uh, this, what about every other thing you've done in your political career? That's been absolutely horrible about it, but it didn't do anything. So I, I thought that was strange, but yeah. I mean, um, it's so, there's also, I mean, like, in general, the Democratic Party, like, 
does really aggressively lead on this like essentialism about race and like how uh uh you know like representation is the most important thing in the world unless unless it's politically inconvenient because it's a republican in which case it's not <laughs> it's not important anymore um and and it's it's like honestly it's a little weird even when it's cory bush doing it it's obviously going to be embarrassing with this like you know with this like elderly declining white guy who has a horrible record is trying to do the same thing. Well, but um, <laughs> I don't, uh, anyway, like I said, I, I just wanted to call and give yeah, you. No, I, I appreciate you. that. And, and I do. Mondale, uh, if I, like I said, I, I don't no, I, I like it. I'm going to, I'm going to look it up, but that's a, that's a good tidbit. That's good to know if that's right. Uh, sorry, sorry, I cut you off there. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for the call. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Sean, what's on your mind? Not too much. I was just listening to your conversation and kind of kind of got me thinking into kind of um, the problem with the Democratic Party and the reason for like the Obama, the well, like the actions of Obama, the actions of Chuck Schumer, and kind of the behavior that they present, and including like the squad. And the thing is, is like. People don't actually understand, like, the level of social engineering that goes into these people. Like, they're evil. They're not completely stupid. You know what I mean? They have the CIA, the FBI, you know. These people aren't completely just morons. I mean, they're huge morons, but not entirely. And and what I mean by that is, like, <laughs> Obama did kind of give the playbook of what a Democrat is supposed to be. You know what I mean? You're supposed to be like highly intellectual and you're above them. And there is that one quote from Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high. You know what I mean? We're above board. We're smart. We're good. We're moral people. And we don't, we don't get a name calling. And when, what it really was, was they were just pussies. You know what I mean? You need an excuse (laughs) not to do anything, not to fight for anything. And even more so than that, you want to actually give people the illusion who are going to, like, want to follow you the illusion of what to do, which is be a pussy. You know what I mean? Like, be the person who always loses. And you see that with the squad. You know what I mean? Their incompetence, their corruption is under the the uh, the veil of, like, oh, we just, we don't know what to do. We're just, we're being honest. And it's just like, no, you're playing, you're playing a role. And the role is to... <laughs> To kind of teach everybody else, like, if you want to be a Democrat, if you want to be serious, if you want to be like us, you know what I mean? If you look to us as leaders, be pathetic and get steamrolled, you know what I mean? And ever since Obama, that's been the major play that they've they've came up with. And the sad part is, is that's what most liberals think, you know what I mean? The that, And a lot of leftists think that if you are a serious person with serious goals, the way you get those achieved is by being a pushover. You know what I mean? By being intellectually like high-minded, but like morally weak or like personally weak to the point that you don't actually fight for anything. Oh, but are they really ever trying to really fight for anything, right? No, but yeah, that's that's what I mean. It's it, it's it's what I mean is is that is the social engineering aspect of it. You know what I mean? Because if you if you were an AOC that was more a firebrand and still lost, people would emulate the firebrand. You know what I mean? If people and that's the reason the Democratic Party always looks like they're incompetent or weak. Like Chuck Schumer fast tracked a hundred and seventy something judges, lifelong appointed judges, federal judges for Donald Trump. 
And people, like, I remember looking, like, how's nobody saying anything about this? They they look like they're incompetent and weak when they're really corrupt because everybody who watches them, who thinks of them as leaders, will begin to emulate their behavior and action. And, and what I'm saying is they do that on purpose so everybody on the quote-unquote left who sees them, including the squad – thinks that the, the the behaviors that they should adopt to achieve, to achieve something is like just weakness and cowardice and being able to get pushed around and manipulated. And, that, and what I'm saying is the point is that is the point, to appear weak, pathetic, impotent. So we all kind of, anybody who supports a squad or purports, uh, supports left-wing policies, we feel impotent. We feel like we can't accomplish anything. We feel like we can't do anything because that's what the leaders show us. You know what I mean? Or the so-called leaders show us. It's it's a way of like um, monkey see, monkey do. And it's to, I think, I think inherently designed to keep people who are on the left in a more pacified position. I disagree. I disagree. Well, how, how so? Um, because you're kind of talking in a, in a real current sense and there's a lot of projection on that. If you think about the Democratic Party, especially when they had a lot more power in the Senate, the reason why Mitch McConnell is the way he is is because he had to deal with Tip Tip uh, Tip O'Neill and uh, and Ted Kennedy back in the day, and uh, that was really hard for him, and he hated those guys. And there's just wow. a lot of projection on a weak Democratic Party. Um, I don't think, first of all, I think a lot of people think a little too much of themselves when it talks about trying to tell a leftist anything. You don't have to try to tell a leftist anything because there's no left. There's leftists, but there's not enough to try to socially engineer anything. Yeah, there aren't, there aren't enough that, uh, that to, to, to try to to try to do something to that level. Yeah. Um, well, I, mean, I, I don't I, I wouldn't. Well, first of all, I, I kind of. If you want to talk, I was talking about Obama, like okay. when I was talking about like ever since, and and you, we just saw it with Hakeem Jeffries, uh-huh. and there is a there was a black dude who was talking about Hakeem Jeffries. I don't know who he did. He was trying to do like this big Obama impersonation. I just like saw it pass. My dad's a huge CNN, MSNBC fan. I saw it passively and just wanted to beat the living hell out of him. So I walked away from that. But what I'm talking generally about is ever since Obama, Obama pretty much became the architect or the archetype for like democratic politics, you know what I mean? And what it was going to represent and what it was going to be. And it's, and it is literally consistently been the, the past week politician who acts as if they have no control or no power. And just, I, I mean, they're doing it now. You know what I mean? I'm sure the Democrats are thrilled that the Republicans took the house because now they have an excuse to not do anything. You know what I mean? They've been using the same. And th- th- that's kind of what I mean is like, they've been using the same playbook forever. But beyond that, I, I, I would find it hard not to look at the examples of like people on the left and not to notice that like, what the main thing that the media, the Democratic establishment has tried to present the left with, left with is feelings of impotence. Like complete, like Bernie Sanders. Uh-huh. They made Bernie Sanders feel impotent and through the impotence that they kind of forced upon Bernie Sanders that he accepted, by the way, we all kind of felt impotent. You know what I mean? We felt like we're, we're giving everything we got and the best we have is this like little coward who at the end of the day can't even tell Joe Biden to screw himself. You know what I mean? He had to come out over and over and over again and say, Joe Biden's my friend. When Joe Biden's spinning in Bernie Sanders' face, what did Bernie Sanders do? He's my friend. Let's work together. You know what I mean? Can I say something? This is is just my opinion. 
This is mm-hmm. just my opinion. I haven't sat down and written this out and thought about this this deeply because I I the way you're framing it, I'm not necessarily on board with it. I, I'm not disagreeing 100%, but I'm not necessarily 100% on board with it. I I think what Donald Trump does for politics is show some sort of rhetorical power in calling people names. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened in the last eight years or eh, seven, eight years in, in media, especially uh, the media in which places like me and Ben exist in, there's this weird uh, hold politicians accountable. We have to hold their feet to the fire. I'm trying to figure out who the fuck the we is. Because there isn't really an organized real left, but the left is always spoken about as if it's this coherent thing. Is it DSA? Is it PSL? Is it Twitter? I don't know. Let me just say, yeah, let me just say one thing about this, and then we can throw back to Sean after that for the last word, and then and then to go to the next caller. But I, I think, I think it might be. I mean, first of all, hundred percent agree with the last thing that Jason was saying. there isn't really a left in the United States in, in any, in any, you know, meaningful way, particularly, I mean, like, you know, for one thing, there's no organized working class. So that's the, you know, you don't have a lot of cases of successful lefts that don't have that at their base. We have like 6.7% private sector unionization. So that's the, that's the first big, big hurdle. I mean, I think a lot of times what people are really talking about more than anything when they talk about the left is like journalists and academics, which is nice. And I don't like hate everybody who's a member of both groups. I mean, of either group, I mean, I'm kind of in both, but, um, but like, that's not a, that's not a basis for like a force that like could really intervene much in American politics. And then linked to that, I think that there's a, um, that uh, I, I'd want to make a distinction, right? Cause, cause I think there is some truth to what you're saying, Sean, but I, th- I think that uh, it depends a little bit, which Democrats were talking about. Um, because to a certain extent, like if you're talking about Obama or Biden, yeah, I don't, I don't think what you said is a hundred percent wrong. I mean, I think that like, you know, some of this stuff, like some of the reforms that like Obama was talking about in 2008 and, uh, and then didn't, you know, certainly didn't accomplish, uh, over the course of those eight years. And in some cases really didn't go through much of an effort of even pretending to be trying to accomplish, and then like 12 years later, Biden just like ran on all the same shit as if Obama hadn't said it before. Uh, I think some of that stuff, like those guys, like, yeah, look, if it were like really easy to accomplish it with like no pushback from established interests, maybe they would be fine with some of it happening. You know, this, this like card check and, you know, public option, all this stuff. But, uh, but I don't think they care very much. I don't think there's anything in their like legislative records that would make me think they care very much. But on the other hand, I think when you're talking about people who are like, uh, you mentioned the squad earlier, which is, you know, maybe not a word I love, but whatever. I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, the, like, um, when you're talking about sort of ambiguously left aligned politicians, which is what we're really talking about, like Bernie Sanders, I think is a little bit of a different category because he actually has an ideological background in the socialist movement um, and a little bit of an independent power base. But I think somebody like, AOC or people like that. Those are just like, you know, progressive Democrats who kind of liked the sound of what Bernie was saying in 2016 and don't, you know, 
but like, I, I think ideologically that's a little bit different, but it's like, look, a lot of those people who are like ambiguously left aligned politicians, I think if you look at their overall voting records, I think if you look at their, you know, certainly history of public statements, et cetera, I think do have uh, political preferences that are very different from mainstream Democrats. Uh, and I, and I think that something that our friend Gene Bajalan often points out that I think is, is right, is worth saying is like, look, you could make points about personal cowardice and whatever. And I don't, I don't think there's nothing to that critique. I think in certain cases there is something to it, but like the larger problem is, is structural. It's about incentives that you have like a tiny handful of these people uh, there. Uh, there's no real movement to back them up. Uh, there's like even in a knocking doors kind of way of backing up, there's no real movement there on the ground in any significant numbers. And you do obviously have this countervailing pressure from party leadership, from these different forces, from constituents, uh, and so I think oftentimes, given just those structural facts, the fact that, yeah, like a lot of these, a lot of times these people will fold on things that we wish they would vote one way and that they, they, they sort of cave and vote another, or, you know, they, they have like, you get like these weird spectacles, like the Iron Dome thing where most of them voted against it, but Jamal Bowman voted for it. And AOC, you know, famously didn't wrap herself in glory about it. Uh, she, uh, changed her vote to present and then cried about it, but like, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, not a good moment, but like, uh, but like, I think all that stuff is kind of the manifestation of these sort of structural facts that we have this, like, even, even if the left means like progressive Democrats, you know, not like people who are, you know, what I would think of as really a left, which is something that's like based in an organized working class that's committed to socialism. But even if we just mean progressive Democrats, that's like so structurally weak that it's it's really a no meaningful position to exercise influence in any of these people. Like I always think, you know, whenever once in a while somebody will say, Hey, do you think AOC or whoever should be kicked out of DSA for this, that, or the other thing? Like, look, assuming she still pays dues to DSA, which she maybe, <laughs> maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. I don't know if she does, but like assuming she still does, look, I don't have a problem with it. Kick her out. Sure, go nuts. I don't think she'll notice. Yeah, I I would agree. First of all, that there is not a there, structurally there is not a left because of the fact like leftists and and I've been a part of a few organizing groups notoriously will destroy themselves. You know what I mean? And that's a problem. But what I'm talking about are people who are beginning to kind of get into politics, and what is the message that they're receiving? And I'll kind of break it down to like kind of two things. And and what my major point is is kind of like the danger and the inherent evil of civility politics and the way civility politics like um disperses itself throughout the entire american society and becomes a means to which people think that this is the right form of engagement you know what i mean like if you look at i'll give you a great example if you look at trump and the republicans they're bombastic they get in your face and Half the time, they have no idea what they're talking about or what they're talking about is just flat out wrong. But they have the confidence of like, you know what I mean? They have a confidence of a well-read like master at something. So do you, want, no- do you want politicians just to be louder? No, no. What what I'm saying is the problem is is with the and when I, when I when I say the left, I'm talking about the potential movement, the potential action of people coming together in the large movement after looking at the same issues and the same you know the same problems. Um, do I want politicians just to kind of be louder? 
if that if the politicians are louder at the right people for the right reasons, unequivocally, yes, I think that would change the entire the entire game. If you had like an elected official who was got elected on the Democratic side and completely went off on Nancy Pelosi or even like um, a Joe Manchin, and there is a video of that politician like screaming at Joe Manchin, like you're a piece of you know what I mean, this yeah. that and the other. I think that that would have a much, much bigger impact on the actual condition of the left and the political comprehension that the left has than anything else. The problem is, is that all representation in the media and in the halls of Congress on any left wing issue from any person who's even marginally considered quote unquote left is weak, spineless, milly mouth garbage. And what I'm saying is constantly having that presented to the entire American public as as the representation of what the left represents makes it so that the people who see that think that that's what left means. You know what I mean? What right. does it mean to be left? It means to be a spineless. Uh, okay. That, that's, look, I'll, I'll, let me say this, Ben. Let me, sure. let me say this. Sure, you sure. can go back to Hannity and Combs. And that was the whole point of that show, right? Uh, I can't remember Combs' first name. Alan. But that dude, Alan Combs. Yeah. His job was to be a spineless jellyfish in the face of Sean Hannity's tough guy, right? And I, that was that's what the late nineties, uh, early two thousands. And I get what you're saying. I think there's a little bit of underestimation in the politics of civility for a lot of people makes sense because the buffoonishness does wear off. And what you're talking about is kind of the crux of my piece. It's branding. We're not talking about action. We're talking about yelling at somebody or saying something. I could yell at anybody. If Steny Hoyer cursed out Nancy Pelosi and then voted for another increase in the military budget, it really wouldn't matter, but it would look great on TV. And that's what we're seeing in this current moment, a lot of branding. Obama was a brand. Trump is a brand. And there really is no brand running for either party right now other than maybe uh i feel like gavin newsom is a bit of a a, a brand in in wake and uh, and <laughs> ron DeSantis. um yeah now that's interesting although again ron DeSantis, i mean literally i think was trying to do a trump impression for a while maybe he's emerging into his own thing <laughs> uh but yes uh sorry about that i i uh, i meant to um um I meant to give you the, the last word there, but we do need to go on to our next caller. Uh, John, what's on your mind today? Uh, first, <clears throat> oh, God, my, my voice is not good tonight. I just want to say first, uh, hey, what's up, Ben, Jason? Hey, what's up, Steve? Been a minute. Oh, long time no here. It's yeah, been, yeah, it's uh, been a minute, brother. I know. It's, it's great to hear from you. I miss you. Hey, miss you too. I, I'm, I'm checking you out on social media. I see you. When yeah, I'm on there, I'm not on there. Yeah, either. same. I'm trying to kind of limit my uh, time there. Um, seeing that this is a a just AMA, I figured like yeah. since Jason's like uh, a big music guy, you yeah. know, which he plays in a band, as yeah. you know, they're like, like I watch the YouTube videos; they're great. Shout out. <laughs> um, I recently just started listening to The Strokes, and okay. um, I'm sure you've heard of them. Yep. Right. And I don't know if you're a fan. I mean, you don't have to be a big fan. I don't know if Ben is either. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the thing with like politics and music, 
mm-hmm. when you look into like uh like all these like acts you know getting behind a sort of candidate like bernie sanders or uh anybody on the left i mean you know i i actually kind of like that and uh, i was kind of thinking what your guys' take was you know could we have that again if that makes sense was a uh of a certain like musician artist band kind of getting behind a candidate and and um, having it be some sort of meaningful push um i don't know i don't i've never been one that music is going to lead the revolution and it can be a part of it in some capacity but i don't think it it's going to you know <laughs> be be the catalyst uh and i don't know if celebrity on a massive scale really helps if you look at um you know i follow la city council because it's just kind of a few hours above me and and i know people that write for the or wrote for the times and um you know they had people in the city council that got a lot of support from hollywood um and that helped them but on a national scale i think there's always celebrities and musicians that uh that try to support a candidate, but generally, especially in this climate, not a lot of people want to be very political. Um, I remember when Trump got elected, um, I, I remember this very vividly. We were sitting in the studio uh, when he got when he won the election and a buddy looked over at me who's not very political at all and said, well, looks like we're going to get some great music out of these next four years. And we really didn't. <laughs> ben, I can't think of anything that was too too dope, you know, during the, the Trump years like we got in the uh, in the 80s uh, with the pushback of, of Reagan and Thatcher with stuff like hardcore punk, punk and even uh, hip hop to some degree. But I don't think that a musician on a big federal election or even a series of musicians has that much influence um, to push a politician over the top. Yeah. You kind of think that we would have that now uh, with everything that's going on, Um, especially with like between the Bernie campaigns, the 2016 uh, Trump, the presidency, the midterm of 2018 and then Bernie's second run Mm -hmm. with everything that went, you know, going back to the strokes, how there well at least, uh, what's his name? Julian Casablancas, I think is his last name. Mm-hmm. How he was like really big for Bernie, as were the whole band. Mm-hmm. Um, like that sort of momentum that we saw in the camp, like those between those two campaigns. And it's just like we're we're not seeing that now. And it's kind of a disappointment, you know. Well, also you have to ask yourself, I mean, what's the reach of a band like the Strokes and uh what does their fan base you know, what are they really looking for and what kind of fans do they have? It's one thing if the strokes say, Hey, we think this Bernie Sanders guy is, is good. It's another thing if like, I don't know, the Dixie chicks <laughs> or maybe I can't think of a country artist that's really popular right now said, said something very similar. You know, Toby Keith came out and said, you know, that Bernie Sanders ain't bad. Uh, <laughs> I think that would have a lot more sway than, you know, someone, preaching to their very small choir you know well i mean and i've got to say that's why you know one of the only like look most celebrity endorsements i don't i don't think are 
you know, I don't think it mattered very much. Like, you know, it was cool not to see Danny DeVito at Bernie, Bernie rallies, right? But I don't yeah. know that that moved a lot of people. Uh, you know, like I enjoyed it. But um, but yeah, I mean, one of the few one of the few celebrity endorsements that might have actually mattered a little bit was uh, was Joe Rogan, right? Because because mm-hmm. it's because because there's a little bit of a uh, there's a little bit of a dog bites man uh, aspect to it, you know, that the that it's it's somebody who who's you know who has a weird enough combination of political impulses and has a you know and 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 has. Uh, a right tilted well you know most of his guests are like comedians and you know and and uh, mma fighters and stuff but as far as political guests that you know that tends to be you know there's like a rightward tilt you know in the numbers and so a lot of the you know so a lot so he's going to get a lot of viewers and listeners who uh uh you know who aren't left wing so maybe that one mattered a little bit but yeah overall i agree with um i agree with jason i mean I, the way i was thinking about it before i remembered that example is it's like look um you know, I think I would worry about like I think it would be a bad sign if you had a if you had a campaign <laughs> that you didn't get some musicians and, uh, and actors. Well, you, you know, Ben, this this brings up an interesting point. You know, someone yeah. saying something about they they don't care what a musician thinks. You look at a guy like Roger Waters, who we, I did Desert Trip uh, when Roger Waters was there, and his whole thing. This was what twenty. I, I just want to make one point. Uh-huh. I'm more of a Dave Gilmore fan than Roger Waters. Got it. Got it. The reclusive. Uh, <laughs> um, fair enough. Um, what was the what, what is was the first, what was the first <laughs> album that Roger Waters was on? I I want. I'm not that big on the history of Pink Floyd, but I, I could say Dark Side of the Moon because like that's okay. Well, I mean, like you gotta love that, right? I mean, that's uh, right. like be a weird weird Pink Floyd fan if you didn't like you know if you didn't like that. But his whole his whole live show, the the whole Roger Waters live show, was a pretty much an F Trump live show. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of interesting about that whole thing is that happens at the end of twenty, towards the end of twenty sixteen. It was like October something when Desert Trip was. That's when I remember coming home. Um, and the people in the crowd, the very very packed crowd, were probably what you guys what we would call PMC liberals. Um, yeah, it was a very expensive festival, um, a kind of a once in a lifetime thing. And Roger Waters had an entire but two hour plus set of some trippy F Trump <laughs> music and and visuals. And what did that do in the in the grand scheme of things? Uh, the next year, the country festival is called Stagecoach. Trump had already won. And there was so much um, Trump branding by the people at Stagecoach, a lot of it tongue in cheek, but apolitical people wearing, you know, Reagan Bush T-shirts. It was like Reagan Bush 84 T-shirts, which were dominating what I was seeing in the crowd, Um, you know, kind of led me to believe that, you know, these people look at this as as a brand thing. This is less about branding than where they really stand politically. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what happens when you lean into musicians a little bit too much. Well, I will, I will, I will say just before I go back to John, two things about that. Um, one, it, well, I mean, you know, the, the Roger Waters example is a little funny for me since, uh, <laughs> uh, since, since I, I am a big Pink Floyd fan. Like I, I mean, I, 
I love the shit out of dark side of the moon, <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, and, and so, and recently or not that recently, but whatever, within the last couple, within the last year or two, I'm not sure time blurs together. I had the very strange experience of seeing Roger Waters, uh, talk some very ugly personal shit about a good friend of mine, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, cause, cause he was on like a rival podcast and, you know, Oh and, dude, he's and, all in the podcast world, man. Roger yeah, yeah, Waters. Exactly. exactly. So it's like seeing him like, you know, be invited out to a, you know, being on a podcast where he's going to be given the opera, you know, invited to talk shit about another podcaster and, and, and given and taking that and, and, and taking them up on it. And then it's like, Oh, I feel really weird right now. Roger Waters is shitting on my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, but, I definitely know who you're talking about. But, um, but, but also, <laughs> um, like on the larger issue though, I, I mean, I, I mean, yes, I agree with everything Jason said. I will say like, so, um, Day before yesterday, I was at uh, Western Connecticut State University. Uh, a friend of mine uh, is a uh, is a creative writing professor there. They have an MFA program where they do it's both creative and professional writing, so it includes like journalism. So they they brought me in as like a guest speaker for this MFA residency in um, at WestCon, and uh, basically uh, basically he you know, like it's students have workshop in the morning and the afternoons, they have like an option of different events they can go to. And one of them was this conversation between my friend and the faculty and me. It was like, you know, not unlike a podcast, but nobody was recording it. And uh, in there, because of course the context of the MFA program, we're, we're talking a little bit about this issue about the relationship between art and politics. And in that conversation, um, you know, he kind of asked me about that, about where I sort of saw the line about, you know, the, uh, about sort of art and like polemic and, you know, basically like what's too polemic or whatever. And, and I said, I, I, I kind of said like, well, look, in a way it's actually good that you could have hyper political art where it's still enjoyed by people who don't agree with the politics. Cause mm-hmm. that shows that you're doing something right on an artistic level. Right. Like, uh, like even as, as ridiculous as it is, it is that like Paul Ryan's a huge rage against the machine fan. Like, cause, um, you know, some of those songs, like the lyrics might as well be, I, Tom Morello, for the record, am a communist and I hate American imperialism. And that's what this song they is about. They have Shining Path in one of their videos. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, yeah. right? Like, it's it's not subtle. Um, no. Like, like right. somehow this this Republican congressman was just like, he was he was in the he was in the congressional exercise room and and he was blasting you know rage against the machine he just never once thought about it and like that's funny but it's also like okay i mean if you're if that's not going to be true if you're not going to appeal to people who either are indifferent to or even hostile to the politics you're pushing then i don't know what that says about you know like what you're producing as music i mean you know mm-hmm. bruce springsteen um uh, is um uh, you know like has a million, you know, I mean, no, you know, no shining path, but a lot of stuff about, you know, poverty and worker struggles and stuff like that. And, um, and, you know, it's like, look there, it's, it's not like there aren't like a million guys in New Jersey who are either not very political or maybe even voted Republican when he was singing those, you know, yeah. singing those songs and listened yeah. to every single album without fail. Yeah. It's, it's the same way with REM, you know, the, the band REM, how, how political they were. From you know, Murmur Time, nineteen eighty three to now, where Michael Stipe uh, is a big 
democratic socialist. And it's just like the admiration I have for him when I was in high school, listening to that band has gotten a lot, um, a lot higher now, but that's just an example of REM. They're, they're an example of a band who has been political and they deserve because they actually practice what they preach. Yeah. But I mean, like, whatever, I I think it's also fine. Like, um, I think if you're producing good music, it's going to be enjoyed by people who don't share your politics. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I can't think off the top of my head of any particular reaction or musicians that I like, but like, um, you know, I, I've, I've certainly, I, I've certainly enjoyed plenty of art of other kinds <laughs> that was produced by people whose worldviews I can't stand, you know, um, I'm, uh, you know, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, um, you know, like, like, like Philip Roth, uh, was, was, I think more or less openly horrified by the new left. And I, I still enjoy the novels that, you know, came out of that, you know, cause they're good novels. So anyway, I, I don't know, maybe that's a little rambly. Is there anything else you would <laughs> say to, to wrap up, Joe? Uh, no, just, uh, I just wanted to say hi. To I, I appreciate that. Hey, uh, uh, what's up, John? Thank you so much for calling and uh, check out that uh, documentary about with the strokes in it called meet me in the bathroom. If, uh, oh, if I'm definitely, man. Definitely. Just came yeah. out. All right. Yeah. John, ben, John, thanks so much, man. All right. John Ross, check him out. Um, Jonathan, what's on your mind? I uh, actually kind of liked Sean's analysis. I just thought it was like incomplete, not wrong, but like mm-hmm. giving too much agency to the individuals involved. Mm-hmm. Remind me of what I see as the difference between corruption in ideology, I don't even like hearing the word corruption anymore because mm-hmm. it's, it leaves this like, oh, I'm going to go bribe somebody or I'm going to go threaten somebody. But no, the Iowa State House is stacked with people that don't need to be bribed or threatened because they were pre-selected for their beliefs against, say, marijuana, which if the farmers there found themselves in profit growing that, they would stop growing corn and then Chevron would be hurt. So Chevron stacks the State House with conservative people who are against drugs like you don't have to bribe them. They're 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 a reason that they're there in the first place is because they don't understand what they're doing. It's not like these people in Congress are out there trying to mentally undermine you and trying to act weak. You know what I mean? Like they're selected for their impotence and they're they've never had original thought of their own. They don't understand power. They don't understand the monetary system. And that's why they're allowed close to power is because they're not a threat to power. It's like, it's like a, yeah, it's like a, you're in a king's court and like there's 15 jesters for every courtier. <laughs> and then the king gives the jesters the robes of the courtiers and he even gives them titles. And then the joke's on them because some, some of them lose the, the script. They, they don't remember that they're jesters. And you walk into this room from outside and the murmur of it sounds normal at first. But like, like he said, you listen for a while and nobody knows what they're talking about. Like it's all just a bunch of blather and they don't understand the, they don't understand what their job is. They don't understand the difference between tactics and strategy where strategy is like what Sun Tzu talks about in the art of war. It's all about what happens before the battle is joined. You you fight when the sun is in their eyes. You you don't engage uphill. Uh, you, you, you try to get them when they're done with the long march. That's like bef- tactics is like once battle is joined, you go spears up the left or up the middle. How many arrows do we have? Right. So there, yeah, AOC is out there thinking that she's doing 
strategy when it there's a time for strategy to be over. Like you can't be in a cavalry charge thinking, you know, the supply lines really should have been redirected uh, south instead of east. Like, it's over. Like, she thinks she's playing some sort of 3D chess with Nancy Pelosi, when really you just need to strike every opportunity, apply all the power you have every time that you can. What if you have no power? She has the power. Like, if you are an elected official and you have the power to, like, not put Pelosi in the chair or vote for Medicare for all, or okay, whatever. I'm like, out, I'm out. What, can, let me let me stop you right there. Yeah, you're saying that that one woman has all that power. That's just an example of someone not using the power that they do have. Well, you're 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 no no no. I need a yes or no. You're saying that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or whoever handedly yeah. has the power to, to cast a vote to cast a vote. Yeah, and okay, not using vote. it. She has the power to cast one vote. Yeah. So she doesn't have the power to, you know, change 400 people's minds, but just cast one vote. So but not in, and not even using it, but because she that, thinks that she's going to get some. That's not power. No, that's not power. And what makes what her is power? What is power? What makes her different then from any of the other 400 people in that Congress? Nothing except for the expectations were different. What expectations? But, who's your congressman? My congressman, well, I think uh, it was Chuck Grassley, but I, I think he's like out now. Gotcha. I've, I've moved to, I left Iowa. Yeah. I'm not there anymore. I have not kept up with it. But I know my district representative with one Ashley Hinson, who's absolutely terrible. Props to you for even knowing that. And you're out. What city in Iowa were you in, by the way? Dubuque. So they're the, but oh. the, here's the, the other one. Finkenhauer is like totally not a threat to power, uh -huh. right? She gets, she, if she got in there and she was for a while, uh -huh. but what is she, she doesn't get how the monetary so, system so the works. Point is, you're saying that a vote is going to give you Medicare for all. That's how else would anybody get any fiscal spending program other than it being voted on in Congress? Okay, and then it would go to the Senate, and then what happens? I mean, it, it would. Um, I mean, if the uh, if there was a vote on it's Medicare for all in, in Congress, Jonathan, uh, can I tell you something? Let me, let me interrupt you real quick, Ben. Yeah, California was trying to pass for the last six years a kind of Medicare for all in state. Okay, and the first time it got shot down before the bill was even presented to the state Senate by then Jerry Brown. He was like, we don't even know where the, the money is going to come from from this. It's, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So for four years, a bunch of state senators got together and figured out where the money was going to come from, how it was going to function. They wanted no holes in that bill. When it came time to present, and, and it's, I love the fact that no one really knows about this. And this happened last year, this, this past year. When it came time to vote on it, the Democratic Party within, within uh, the Democratic machine within the California state legislature had a big talk with the people bringing it forward. And we're like, if you do this, you're going to out some people and we're going to lose seats. So, so this is the so this is a context in which uh, something like the forced to vote strategy would actually make sense because yeah. because you'd uh, 
you know, like, like, like one of my problems, you know, with it on a national scale was always that this idea that, you know, you're going to out people, um, mm -hmm. I think at a national scale was just false. Like it's, mm -hmm. uh, people who, anybody who after the last couple of years before that was the co-sponsor was making no secrets of their opposition to Medicare for all. I mean, remember, you know, people have this idea that people have been so outraged to, uh, to see, uh, you know, their congressman voted against Medicare for all if they were a Democrat that like they would just like get primaried out next time. And, and I often wonder if people remember that this, that all this was happening right after a guy who, uh, said a couple times that he would veto Medicare for all if it came to his desk, beat Bernie Sanders in the, uh, the, the primaries. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that he was able to, you know, I don't think he beat him because most Democratic voters agreed with that. But I think he, uh, but I think it did show that they didn't prioritize it very highly, uh, probably because they never really thought it was going to happen in the first place. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if there was a House vote on Medicare for all, it would lose three to one because all the Republicans and half the Democrats uh, would have voted against it. Um, it wouldn't have outed anybody because anybody who's willing to be a co-sponsor would also cast a meaningless symbolic vote for it in the three everybody knew with a hundred percent certainty they would lose three to one. Um and I, I basically feel like there are two scenarios for how that would have gone. One is that nobody would notice that it happened because it would be on C SPAN for five minutes and uh, probably maybe not even covered on the cable networks, but um if if so, not for more than that. And everybody would just kind of immediately forget about it. That would be the best case scenario. I think the worst case scenario would be that it was used as a cudgel for years afterwards against anybody bringing up Medicare for all, which, you know, they'd say, look, why are you still talking about this? This, this lost three to one in a democratic house. Because there's why, nothing else worth talking what, about. What, what, why don't you move on to something that has a chance of actually happening? Like, because everything is bullshit that has a chance of actually happening. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you, but that's not the question, Jonathan. The question is how is it going to play in terms of larger public perception? And I think that I think only bad things could come. It's a self-fulfilling from... prophecy that no, you're talking about. it's not a self-fulfilling like... prophecy. It's not a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's an assessment of how this actually works. That if they have a that there's a re, you know that like a a three to one defeat. There's no, there's no scenario where anything good comes from that. There are scenarios where that's actually bad for Medicare for all because it makes it easier to marginalize it as a fringe idea that's never going to happen. They have a, every time people who thought this was a good strategy or ever pushed on it or ever pushed on this point, they always start saying, well, it could have been used as an occasion to do this, that, and the other thing, X, Y, and Z. And I was going to say, okay, so do X, Y, and Z. What is holding the meaningless symbolic floor vote that could only be embarrassing add to that? And nobody ever has an answer to that. Like my favorite example of this is uh, Brianna Joy Gray wrote an article for Current Affairs at the time where she said, well, um, you know, this would be a very effective thing if it were combined with a general strike. And it's like, yeah, okay. It would also <laughs> be more effective if it were combined by intergalactic aliens uh, landing on the uh, – Landing on the uh, the roof of the Capitol and uh, and issuing a demand for Medicare for all, but I mean, given that neither of those things is realistically going to happen in that time frame, I, I don't I don't see the point. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you should never like use leverage to ask for things. It just doesn't mean that in fact this specific tactic might not even make sense in certain contexts. I actually think the California example that Jason's given is a plausible example where it would have actually uh, made sense because, you know, because they're probably, 
you know, in a much more, in a much more liberal state where there's, um, you know, I, I think the dynamics of that are different also with, you know, with a much bigger uh, Democratic majority. I think that it is plausible that lots of people would not want to be outed as opponents of, uh, of Medicare for all. And that, you know, that there might actually be some good that would come politically of like forcing these people to vote against it. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not sold on the idea that that would have the uh, that that would have the same the same effect, uh, the same effect nationally. I also think that there's something, um, you know, a little bit absurd about the fact that two years later we're we're st- we're we're still arguing mm-hmm. about not some big point of principle like, oh, you know, should we have Medicare for all? Or should we, you know, just have a public option or something? That's an argument worth having. But they were still arguing about a proposed parliamentary maneuver, right? Something that would have been on C-SPAN for five minutes. That goes back to people kind of looking for politicians to save them. Yeah. No, I think so. I think, um, you know, and and again, that goes back to like, you know, that like you actually, you know, you want to change the dynamics of the American politics. You know, you need, uh, you need a, you need an actual left, which, which starts, I think, with having an actually organized working class. But it's, but it's the idea of like, well, I, I voted for that left, or I gave money to that left when I, when I gave money to AOC or Ilhan Omar, insert politician here, and they didn't give me the thing I wanted, like they said they were going to do. Um, so I don't know. I, I think people are very disconnected. Uh, from actual politics because there's so much that's ultimately kind of what the feature length documentary video essay is about. The the kayfabe one. Yeah. 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 No, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, let me just, let me just say, uh, so it's five 30. Uh, I need to talk to Matt McManus about a book that we're working on. That's, that's what I said I would do at this, uh, at this time. And then I need to, to run out and, uh, and, uh, do some, uh, do some, do some errands, uh, here, but. And I, uh, I just want to say this because there's people saying this stuff in the chat and it always makes you mad. Uh, AOC is in my, oh, well, I don't live in the States anymore, but AOC was never my congressperson. I didn't vote for her. And I've never heard someone getting mad at their congressperson. No, because the person that has the most publicity on social media, I find that fascinating. Because because they're because they're pho- you know because yeah because I think we're talking like a a photogenic person who there's a lot of national discourse about and you know there's a it's yeah I and again the point of this none of this is like a defense of AOC I think that she's done plenty of things that I actually have very harshly criticized I'm not sure not doing this very poorly thought out parliamentary tactic goes on that list. But uh, there are plenty of things that she's done that I've been very harshly critical of uh, in in public and articles, whatever. And again, I don't even, you know, like, yeah, sure, kick her out DSA, whatever. I don't care. You know, I, I just uh, for all the good it'll do you. But I mean, I think that um, I think that uh, sort of equating doing this particular tactic that never really made any sense with like, oh, well, if you're not doing that, you're not doing anything. I think it's a very uh, podcast centric way of understanding politics um, would be my, I, I know a lot of people who are listening to this don't want to hear it and, uh, and think I'm full of shit about this. That's fine. Maybe I am full of shit on this, but uh, that is still what I think. And uh, I think I'm going to have to leave it at that. Uh, I know there are people in the queue, but um, let me, uh, you know, there are people who, who have talked, want to follow up and say more. Uh, tell you what, 
I um, I think I can get Jason back on in the future. This is not going to be your only chance to talk to him. I know his booking agent, so uh, <laughs> uh, we'll uh, you know I, I I think we got him. I think we got him back for the future. Uh, so um, so this is not a one time thing. So I will uh, I am going to call it there for uh, for tonight though. Uh, I, I will say, uh, so I am going to be on the This Is Revolution channel tomorrow at uh, 1 p.m. here on the West Coast, uh, 4 p.m. on the East Coast, talking to Stefan Bertram Lee uh, about the uh, the essay on the philosophy for the people substack that should be up by then, uh, which is going to be called Thinking Harder About Justice, Rawls versus Cohen versus Marx. Uh, and, uh, and then on Monday on uh, my show, uh, we're going to have, uh, Adnan Hussein and Harvey JK, I believe, mm. uh, talk about, uh, Marx's theory of history. Uh, so, uh, that should be a lot of fun. Uh, Jason, before we, uh, before we, uh, we check out for tonight, you want to tell people mm. what's coming up on TIR? Oh, shit. Uh, we did the Somalia show today. I know Gene has a show. Going up Tuesday, I don't remember. I know we'll be live Thursday, so we'll be we'll be back live Thursday, uh, doing our news roundup show. Um, there's definitely some writing projects coming from Pascal and I uh, very soon. And if you disagree with anything we say, make sure you sell tell it to Ben Burgess on Twitter. He loves that. Yes, yes, uh, that is that is the best that is the best forum for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, if you disagree with what we say, you should come to New York on the 22nd. And say, and say it to our person. faces. Make sure person. you say it to our faces. Middle right fingers there. In there and everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, be, uh, uh, yeah, really, um, you know, give, uh, you know, give people, give people a show. So, uh, no, I, I am, um, I, I'm not holding my breath for anybody to take up that, that invitation, but you know, it is out there. Something to think about. Uh, <laughs> and then just get a bunch of New York. Hey, hey, you the guys. Hey, hey. <laughs> I'm podcasting here. I, I disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know is also like, yeah, you know, could disagree. I'm I'm friends with people. You know, I actually hang out with a real life who we disagree about even more important things. Wow. Than whether AOC should have like you tried this particular crazy. parliamentary tactic in 2021. If uh, you're not having a constant circle jerk with your friends, how are you even friends with somebody? All right, uh, the Jason Miles <laughs> theory of friendship. Uh, thank you, Jason. Uh, we really are going to 